from API, this is Energy Tomorrow Radio, your source for information and conversation about the most important energy issues of the day. Welcome to Energy Tomorrow Radio. I'm your host, Jane Van Ryan. The subject of drilling for oil and natural gas continues to be in the headlines this week. Some members of Congress remain critical of opening more areas in the United States to drilling, saying it won't produce oil for 10 years or affect oil prices until 2030. But what do the experts think? Today, James Hackett, President and CEO of Anadarko Petroleum, is joining us by telephone to weigh in on the drilling issue. Welcome, Mr. Hackett. Thank you, Jane. Glad to be here. Let's look at the facts. Uh, first of all, if some of the areas where oil and natural gas are believed to exist were open to exploration and production, how long would it take to begin producing oil? Well, it depends on whether you're onshore or offshore, um, obviously. And if you're onshore, it actually takes quite uh, a very short period. If you were able to lease up land, uh, which is currently restricted from access, and able to get the permitting, you could actually be on production within a year. And there are significant quantities of oil and gas that are off limits to us in non-park, non-wilderness areas today. And so one of the immediate places you would want to go for more natural gas and oil is onshore in the United States. If you look at the offshore area, from leasing up the um, the land until you have a discovery may take uh, about two to three years, depending on your rig availability. And then you would have um, another three to four years, uh, potentially, for production to start. So you're speaking to about a period of five to seven years from leasing to production, but importantly, from the impact on supplies, which in a static world would therefore influence pricing, um, you have an effect from that investment where you would have an announced discovery, and if enough of those occurred, the markets which tend to trade based on future uh, estimates of supply and demand would, would obviously react to that. Today, they have very little to react to from a positive standpoint because they see continuing declines in production in more mature areas of large production fields in other countries as well as in the United States, and they don't seem to be seeing enough access to new resource potential uh, here in, in places like the United States or in other areas of the world. Well, some members of Congress are considering opening the Outer Continental Shelf to drilling. You've already mentioned the potential impact on the supply and demand equation, but what are the other domestic benefits of opening the OCS to exploration and production? Well, I think the major one is what you mentioned, which is supply. And, uh, again, assuming that demand is um, a given, more supply should help uh, the American consumer with regard to affordability. And uh, we are obviously very focused on that as a company, and I think the industry is as well. Our capital expenditures continue to grow significantly every year to try to um, uh, find more supplies worldwide with fungible commodities like oil and domestically with regard to products like natural gas and even with liquefied natural gas internationally. Um, the other thing that I think is, is a wonderful result of that and why it's intriguing that uh, there are proposals to tax the industry uh, directly on existing um, net income is that you also raise more taxes by opening up more access because you are charging royalties on those. You're, the MMS collects those, and in fact, they're sharing with the states so that the states who are budding those areas over time get more funding for education purposes or coastal maintenance purposes or wildlife uh, and fisheries purposes. And it's a, a bit of a virtuous circle between net income taxes as well as royalties 
in terms of what happens for additional economic benefit to neighboring states and the federal government, but importantly for consumers nationwide as it provides more supply. But despite the fact that the federal government gets tax revenues from exploration and production, you've still got some members of Congress who say that oil companies are not actively developing the leases they already have. How do you respond to that? Only that it's a, it shows a very poor understanding of the nature of our business, and it's not atypical for other businesses as well. I think a good analogy for most Americans is if you look at the the, um, the borough of Manhattan in New York is that if you took a 10-year lease, let's say, in the offshore continental shelf and compared it to the development of Manhattan over 100-plus 100 years, is that the first two years of that when we're doing exploration and seismic work might be equivalent to when Dutch hamlets were sitting there on the island. Uh, somewhere in the middle when you have a discovery is when you actually start to see British towns. Uh, the Empire State Building is maybe built in the eighth year, but nobody's going to build out Manhattan to what it is today the first day because they don't know if the actual uh, economic commerciality of building a, an Empire State Building structure can be proved out. They have to see that happen over time. So what we do is we, we take a, a group of leases because nobody would just take one lease and try to make that economic. We try to bid on a number of leases, remembering that all of this is very competitive and you may not be successful on one or ten. And let's call it ten leases that we put together to make a project economic, again, realizing that we don't know if oil exists or gas on one or all ten leases. We do our original um, leasing, pay big dollars for that. We then do um, seismic work on it. We get the permits to go drill on it. That, as I mentioned, might take up to a two-year period before you make that initial discovery, maybe three years. Uh, range all the rig time to make sure that we get slots uh, for these million-dollar-a-day rigs in terms of total loaded cost. Uh, and then we go and drill, and maybe we find oil and gas on that lease. Now, the question then becomes, is there, does that reservoir extend over other leases? And if it does, you may start going and appraising those other leases right away. If it doesn't right away, you first go towards the development of that first lease to make sure that you effectively get good real estate established on the, the coastal side of the uh, analog of Manhattan. And then you start filling in over time as you get towards production and pay for your original leasing and investment costs. You then go to the next lease to see is there more oil and gas there. And that's why there is a up to 10-year period for offshore drilling is because you have to provide that kind of time to properly develop the field. So that um, to suggest that just because it's not in production when you can't even get something into production for five to seven years is a really misleading statement. It doesn't mean that tremendous activity is not occurring and tremendous expenditure of investment dollars, tremendous amounts of science and research aren't being done on all of those leases while they're not in production. So that... Um, it's a very, very misleading concept when people try to state it that way. So the bottom line is, if you don't see a derrick or a platform on a lease, that doesn't mean it's standing idle. Absolutely not. Okay. Well, that's that's a We're very helpful By the point. way, we paid a lot of money to get access to those leases to the federal government, the very one that's uh, criticizing the activity. Uh, I, I suspect that they, would, they don't mind having the $9 billion that have been expended by the industry in the last three lease sales. And, and yet they hope that they, they, I guess they miss the fact that that may not continue if they actually put these provisions in place. Uh, and, and then secondly is that we are paying annual rentals on those leases. It's not as if we're getting them for free. And importantly, again, we are turning those leases back into the federal government in five, eight, ten years, depending on the lease term, 
if we haven't, in fact, found producing oil. So there already is a turn-back feature, a lose-it feature, if you will. This is just a, um, a masking attempt, in my opinion, to try to actually stop all development offshore. Mr. Hackett, there are members of Congress who say that if we were to open the OCS or other areas to drilling right now, that we wouldn't see any benefits from that for quite a long time. What are your thoughts on that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of the development and exploration cycle offshore, that they that we are talking about a five to seven year period for actual production to occur. But importantly, as I mentioned also, is that the markets and how those markets are traded will react to new supply sources so that for the benefits to the country to occur, it doesn't actually take the, the production. If there's, a, if there's a mass of discoveries that occur, you can actually influence the, the affordability of energy uh, on, a, on a nearer term basis than that five to seven year period. Secondly, I might mention is that those are specifically driven towards the offshore as opposed to the fact that if we also lifted restrictions on onshore drilling, we could actually make impacts in a much, much shorter period uh, from the standpoint of those being much more developable much more quickly. And so I, I would say that, that while while there is some accuracy, if you will, to the statement, is that we need to make sure that we don't get dissuaded from doing it because the, the impacts, the benefits are actually shorter term than are indicated there, as well as, you know, we could have said that over the last 20 years since these moratoria were put in place, is that, well, it's going to take, in the case of 20 years ago, because we didn't have the technology or the wherewithal, uh, it, it'll take 20 years to develop that oil, so let's not do it. Well, do we wish we had done that then as opposed to today? So, you know, it's kind of a circular argument to me to say that, okay, if we start from today, it's going to take too long, whereas, you know, okay, what's the alternative? I mean, what are they proposing? Is there anything that they can propose that takes less time? No, because alternative energies, most of which are not, by the way, driven towards gasoline, it's driven towards electricity generation, wind farms, solar farms, et cetera. Those don't help gasoline, which is what really the issue they're speaking to is. And so they confuse even what the alternative forms of energy are, I think, sometimes that are available to us today. Anything that's new on the alternative energy front that would actually provide substitutes for gasoline will take... 15 to 20 years. So would you rather have something that takes five or something that takes 15 to 20? So either give us an alternative that's shorter if you don't like the five years. Well, how much oil actually exists under the United States? Some people say there's not enough left to make drilling worthwhile, but what do you say to that? Oh, it's, um, I think that we none of us know, and, and it usually turns out to be more than we think it is because of technology developments, and particularly in, in a rising price environment, it tends to be more than we might have thought it was. We have developed tremendous technological improvements in this industry over the years in terms of both imaging or seeing the potential reservoir possibilities, as well as accessing those or drilling for those. And we do it environmentally in a very safe way. Uh, we've proven that through two 100-year hurricanes in the deep water Gulf of Mexico. But the, the estimates, at least in onshore, are some 19 billion barrels of oil and over 94 trillion feet of um, gas. And that's by the, by the U.S. government itself. Uh, we tend to find over the years that those estimates are conservative because they're based on what we know today in terms of um, capability scientifically. And they are raw estimates. We tend to find that when we go and start drilling up some of these areas that there is actually more resource than we thought there might be, and over the years it becomes greater because of technological capability. And, and if you look at the offshore area, some 85% of that land 
is not available to the industry, and there's no telling what potential exists in those regions or the 83% of non-park, non-wilderness areas available onshore. But what do you say to people who simply don't like oil, who say, in essence, that we should not be putting any investment dollars in oil, and instead we ought to be investing solely in alternative energy? Well, first of all, that's that's individual liberty, which uh, we certainly applaud in our country and some we can have differing views on that that they that there are some that would be um, willing to go off an oil-based um, system but I don't think the people that say that have any clue what they're really talking about in terms of potential cost of energy for themselves or how they get to work each day uh, it's fine to say that but then if you had to really live it and not fly airplanes and not drive cars that becomes something different so there's some there's a virtual reality being created here where you can suggest that that could be done, but then there's the real reality of of saying, how do you actually implement that? And what do you do to bridge that that ideal future today? And and so none of us, I, I don't think anybody that's a leader in our industry would suggest that we don't have to come up with alternatives to oil over time. Uh, we wish that we had them today, but this is not an industry that, that tends to see breakthrough technologies on a day-to-day basis like the computer industry. And that, and there's huge infrastructure um, implications of it as well. So that what you're doing is you're, you're funding good science for alternative fuels and alternative energy alternatives long-term while you're still encouraging what today exists and what you need today. And you're not trying to pretend that there's a 20-year horizon where you don't have to kind of worry because that's how long it's going to take these alternative fuels to really matter, uh, so that it's fine to encourage it. But the last thing we need to do is have politics lead us there, which is why we've ended up with the very unsatisfactory um, solution of corn-based ethanol for this country, is it's been a disaster financially for taxpayers. It's um, very, very um, questionable with regard to any kind of environmental benefits, and it's also close to energy neutral. It's um, obviously been detrimental to food prices. It's horrible for water usage and, and um, you know, discharge in rivers. And so we've got to make sure that science leads us to the solutions for the future, not politics, and then also look for what are those bridging answers, which have to be conventional fuels. Well, it sounds like what you're saying then is that there is indeed a risk associated with failing to drill for oil and natural gas right now. How would our economy and our standard of living be affected if Congress continues to prevent drilling in the most promising areas? Well, we we have, as a country, gotten lazy, in my opinion, and I include myself in that wholeheartedly. Uh, for those that are as old as I am, we, we went through the late 1970s and the mid-1970s and should should have realized that this could happen again, uh, this time from a demand side instead of the supply side. And it was gerrymandered in the 70s from a supply side, and I think we all thought that, well, if that didn't occur in the future, then maybe we're okay. We never thought that it would come from the demand side, from the tremendous unleashing of um, kind of subjugated populations in China and Russia and also dysfunctional societies in India until quite recently. The great thing is, and, and that's why I think everybody should at least recognize that higher energy prices have a good side to them as well, is that we have unleashed those societies, and they are causing great demand pull. And and would you trade paying lower gasoline prices for putting those countries back in subjugation? I certainly wouldn't. 
Now the question becomes, what do we do on the supply side to, to solve the demand issue? And I see our country doing exactly the opposite of what it ought to be doing, which is that it's basic economics 101, is you, you actually discourage demand or you encourage supply. I see us doing very little of either, uh, particularly in one part of Congress today, and that is that I would have thought the natural arena for liberals would be to encourage conservation. And I, I don't see anybody appearing on TV to suggest that we ought to turn off all of our lights when we leave a room, whether it's in our hotel rooms or at our own homes, or asking anybody, you know, every day getting on TV saying, buy smaller cars. Uh, we just have to become a much more efficient energy-using country because that's the most immediate benefit that you can get on the supply-demand side is to actually lower usage. And so I think we need to spend a lot more time talking about conservation, and we need to do that on a micro basis with each one of us personally taking the steps that are required for that. And then secondly is encouraging supply of all forms, not just oil and gas, but also nuclear energy. And if we don't do that, we will find that the last 30 years where we have lived on the backs of very low real prices of energy will not be repeated for this country. And when you have economies that don't grow, you therefore see more poverty, you see education suffer, because all those are funded by free enterprise and taxation. Um, all of those good things that we want for social welfare benefits and the safety net for those that can't um, necessarily make it on their own. And you don't just see that in the United States. You see it in Africa, where they are finding out firsthand that when they have power shortages, that their economies suffer, and therefore less people are picked up out of poverty. Very wise words. Uh, I want to thank you so much for your observations. James Hackett, President and CEO of Anadarko Petroleum, thank you so much for joining us today on Energy Tomorrow Radio. Thanks, Jane. Thank you for joining us on Energy Tomorrow Radio, brought to you by the people of America's oil and natural gas industry. For more information about this podcast or to submit questions for future shows, visit energytomorrow.org. That's energytomorrow.org.